and welcome to the History Department at Northern Kentucky University. This episode is part of an eight-episode series from the fall of 2021. As part of Professor Brian Hackett's Honors 320 Forbidden History class, students broke into eight groups to provide podcast episodes where they would discuss interesting events from regional history. We provide them here for you uncut as recorded, and we'll continue to provide additional content as it is created here on campus at the department's podcast studio. These first episodes are rough, but showcase that incoming first-year students can take the lessons learned over the course of a semester to create new and interesting content within a matter of weeks. We hope that you will enjoy these podcasts as much as the students enjoyed creating them. Hello. Good afternoon. My name's Brady. My name's Grant. And today we're going to be covering two different topics of forbidden history. Uh, My topic is the CIA MKUltra project. So just for a little bit of background on the project, it was a uh, it lasted from 1953 until 1957, and the whole basis was that the CIA wanted to use drugs, specifically LSD, to try and control people's minds. Um, this all kind of stemmed from a fear of communism and in, the, in uh, North Korea and Russia that the, the communists were going to be able to do this before uh, the people in the United States could, and so they were going to have a, uh, a leg up, so to speak, on, uh, on the United States during the Cold War. Uh, so this project was conducted without the supervision of much of the U.S. government. Uh, people were subjected to um, uh, these experiments without their knowledge. Um, either you know they were given drugs that they didn't know that they uh, were going to be taking, or they were you know uh, they were admitted to a hospital and uh, given care that they did not ask for. Uh, it was started by Alan Dulles. Uh, who was the CIA director in the early 1950s, uh, in an effort to break captured communist enemies and try and get information out of them. So this desire to extract information is something that we still even see today with, um, you know, with the war on terror and whatnot, and some of the Mm -hmm. same techniques that were used during the MKUltra project are the same things that were being used uh, during the war on terror in Guantanamo Bay, other CIA black sites, stuff like that. Um, So... Uh, the program was focused on the effects of drugs on the human mind. Test subjects were subjected to the use of LSD, MDMA or ecstasy, heroin, methamphetamine, uh, and psilocybin or mushrooms. Uh, you know, obviously these drugs we know are pose some danger today, but they also have some other uses. And really, this was only focused on the dangers of it, and you know, just really in an effort to break down people's minds and make them more malleable. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the idea was that you could brainwash people, psychologically torture them, get information, make them do what, what you wanted them to. Uh, but over after a while, after using all these drugs, they figured out they weren't really predictable enough to use uh, for the intended purposes. So what was the main cause in American society for the MK Ultra Project and like the CIA and... Well, I mean, really, it was just a, it was a fear of communism. It was the fear that, you know, in North Korea, in China, in Russia, that they were able to, they were going to be able to capture American soldiers or, you know, American civilians 
and then yeah. you know subject them to whatever and they were going to be able to control them and uh, send them back to the United States yeah. you know use them as agents against the United States as you know kind of sleeper agent type thing um, you know it, it's the same type of thing that you know has been seen in some pop culture um, if you look at you know the Marvel comics the Winter Soldier mm-hmm. is an example of you know communist brainwashing that you know was used against the United States is that that is based around the MK Ultra project and what came out of it because um, there were a lot of different parts of the MK Ultra project uh, one was Operation Midnight Climax which was where they would give prostitutes um, uh, drugs to give to men they would have the prostitutes lure the men into uh, specific hotel rooms that had uh, glass that you could see from the other side through and there would be CIA operatives on the other side and just there to study the effects of what happened when these men were dr- were drugged with LSD and other drugs. Um, that's not really what ended up actually happening because uh, they treated it more like kind of a game or a party. Uh, they'd be behind the glass, they'd be drinking, they'd be having fun all while, you know, I mean, the man, a man is essentially in the other room getting raped because he's mm-hmm. under the influence of drugs. Um, so the MKUltra project lasted for 20 years and it was really only shut down um, in the 70s in the wake of everything that happened with Nixon. Uh, once the Watergate scandal came out and everything happened, um, Gerald Ford really tried to look at the... Um, the CIA and everything they were doing in the United States. And so he set up a couple of commissions that eventually found the documents that pertain to MKUltra. And that's really when the project was shut down. Uh, sadly, we don't really know the extent of it. There's not um, a lot of, a lot of the documents were lost. The official story is that there was a fire that um, burned through a lot of the documents and there's no, um, so we don't really know the full extent, but uh, what we do know is pretty horrifying. Do you think that uh, there was a degree of distrust from the American people after, like, after everybody found out about the stuff that CIA was doing to curb communism? I mean, I definitely think there was. I think it's even today where we see a lot of conspiracy theories about the government and what they, you know, what the government does to people. Um, Right after everything came out, it really wasn't super widely known, partially because there wasn't a ton of information about it. Um, there's a couple different, um, you know, accounts from people of who either they experienced it or they had a family member who experienced it, and um, and uh, it's a, just terrible stuff. Uh, one example is Frank Olson, who was mm-hmm. a member of the CIA. Uh, he was pretty high up in the CIA's. Um, Bureaucracy, so he would have been knowledgeable about a lot of the different uh, projects that were underway, specifically in MK Ultra. Mm-hmm. So Olson mysteriously died. Um, the story was he committed suicide by jumping off a balcony in a New York City hotel. Uh, his family didn't really buy that story, so what they did was they had his body exhumed. They had another autopsy done. It was found that he had LSD in his system, so he had been drugged. He had multiple um, injuries that were sustained from before he had fallen. So the idea was that it wasn't really a suicide so much as it was he had been killed by the CIA for you know maybe wanting to go public with some of the stuff that he knew or whatnot. Um, and once they found out found out about this, uh, his family was paid three fourths of a million of, do- for, of a million dollars. Uh, they were officially apologized to by Gerald Ford uh, and CIA Director William Colby, who was then CIA Director. 
Um, you know, obviously there aren't records saying this is officially what happened, but I mean, yeah. if the president is willing to apologize for something like that, it's pretty clear that that there was more to it than just a suicide. Um, so the, a lot of the details were exposed in the mid-70s uh, by Seymour Hersh, who was a, who was a reporter for New, the New York Times. Uh, and like I said, President Ford, who was scared after the events of the Water, Watergate scandal, wanted it to be fully investigated. So he set up the Rockefeller Commission and the Church Commission to help find out the details. Uh, the Church Commission found... Uh, looked at government corruption after Nixon and is what ultimately exposed whatever documents remained of the MK Ultra project. Um, you know, so even today there are people who think that this project is still happening. You know, if something um, strange happens with a celebrity or something like that, you know, uh, people still say that they think that they're being controlled by the government through the MKUltra project. I mean, personally, I don't think that the government is still trying to use drugs to control people. I think it's probably easier to use technology, but, you know, who knows. Um, and, you know, there's uh, another story. Uh, that comes out of the MKUltra project, because it wasn't just in the United States, it was also in uh, other places like Canada, is uh, Esther Schreiner, who was, um, who had just given birth. She was suffering what today we would call postpartum depression. And so she went in to, um, to the hospital to try and get some treatment. And she was given to the doctor, Ewan Cameron, who was the head of multiple, you know, psychological um, uh, societies and whatnot. And what she was subjected to while pregnant with another child was she was given electroshock therapy. She was subjected to different types of drugs that she, none, none of this was what she asked for. Um, she was put in a room and kept in a drug-induced coma for almost a month and, you know, only woken up to use the bathroom and to be fed. Uh, you know, basically subjected her to a vegetative state because the idea was that if you were able to break someone down to essentially the mind of a child, you would be able to rebuild that person in the way that you wanted them to be, and you could control how they acted, what they did. Uh, thankfully, she was eventually freed of this, you know, uh, from this hospital, and she made a full recovery. She lived until uh, 2017. She died of cancer. Um, but her son uh, sued the Canadian government in an attempt to try and get um, some compensation for everything that happened to his family. And he actually was set, the Canadian government said that he wasn't a victim, even though he was pregnant. She, he was the baby that she was pregnant with at the time. So if you ask me, he would have been a victim because everything that was done to her obviously would have had some effect on, on the child. But... This sounds very similar to me to a study that I've heard about in one of my psychology classes. Um, it was a study of the people in Tuskegee, Alabama, I believe. With the they scientists used them as um, study as a study. For syphilis. Yes, yeah. for syphilis, yes. Yeah, they would. They let them, they let the syphilis basically ravage those populations just to kind of see what would happen. Mm -hmm. um, and no, I mean, you're right. That is definitely something that very much connects to this because it kind of goes along the idea of when does science go too far? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, yes, there are benefits to knowing the effects of drugs, but, you know, these people didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know that they were signing up for this a lot of time, you know, like I said, they were either lured in by prostitutes or they were just trying to go to the hospital to get treated. Um, you know, one of the darker parts of this was the fact that, 
you know, during World War II in Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan, there were a lot of experiments done on, um, you know, on people. How much could a human body take before it collapsed? How long could people stay awake before they died? You know, whatever. Um, and some of the same scientists who came up with those projects to try and figure those uh, those questions out were the same scientists who worked on the MKUltra project who came up with the different ideas. Um, so, uh, ethics appears to be a very large part of this, and do you think that modern day society has grown a, a more of a sense of ethics nowadays in our scientific studies with the the vast superiority of uh, of social media and other ways that information can reach the general public. I mean, I would think so. I think that you know, with I think you had to come back to this idea that a lot of this came down to the fact that people were afraid of communism and and the government was afraid of what a communistic government would do if it had access to mind control, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so you know, I mean, I think that when fear rules people's minds they make really bad decisions and you know that's what really allowed you know not only the CIA to do stuff like the MK Ultra project and there was multiple other projects that you know also did horrible things to american citizens um, but you know they 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 were they were afraid of communism and that's really what drove them to you know doing these terrible things. And I, I would hope that today we're not, we don't have that same fear that would allow something like that to happen. Mm -hmm. And a great example of that is the McCarthy trials, mm -hmm. uh, where the big, the U.S. government was really going after the Red Scare and communists infiltrating our government. Um, that's the history of it, at least. And what was the, what was the name of the organization that... Fought against uh, communism. So the the House Un-American Activities Committee was uh, mainly headed by Joseph McCarthy, mm -hmm. really to try and you know uh, purportedly root out communism in the United States. In reality, he accused people of communism of being a communist that were not, and got them blacklisted. Um, you know, uh, and so I mean I, that's just another example of one of you know this fear of communism and what that allows the government to do. Um, and it, it really it comes down to oversight. You know, with more oversight over the CIA, over the MKUltra project, it would not have been as bad. But the CIA wanted to kind of distance themselves as much as possible. Um, and so what they would do, you know, is they would kind of contract out. They would, you know, set up endowments or do other things to give money away to certain people for them to conduct the project. So it wasn't the CIA themselves that were conducting the project. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it really leads to this idea that there has to be oversight if um, if there's going to be, you know, something, you know, good to come out of these projects.
So that's just a brief history of the MK Ultra project and you know everything that went along with it. And then I know you were going to talk about uh, organized crime in the United States. Yes. So organized crime in the United States has a very long history, um, and it really bases itself on the human tendency tendency to organize in groups, um, especially in society uh, when we're divided by race or um, how much money we make back in the day, especially in the late 1800s when um, Italians immigrated from from Italy and formed these neighborhood gangs to have influence over their neighbors. Um, these were very poor, unskilled laborers who didn't have the who didn't have the training to maybe do certain jobs in metalwork or other popular jobs that were um, were needed at the time. And after these gangs grew large enough, they organized together and became known as the Italian-American Mafia, who, who brought about uh, gangsters such as Al Capone and many popular gangsters that were known throughout history. So in the early 1900s, the 18th Amendment was passed, uh, also known as the Volstead, the Volstead Act or the Prohibition Act. These acts made bootlegging an incredibly profitable business as they outlawed legal alcohol from being sold around the U.S. And this was especially problematic as for for the mafia as it was repealed and they lost a a big source of revenue in their in their crime families. So what was what was the mafia like before the Volstead Act? Were they what, what was how did they make their money? Like what, what what was it that they did? So a main they with these poor unskilled laborers, they kind of formed and and took the job of uh, labor unions in in these neighborhoods as they they protected the the local jobs in the neighborhoods and gave um, gave small businesses protection. Um, usually, they had to pay for it. It doesn't sound as as beneficial as it might seem because. Um, Especially as they be began to to grow larger and focused on profit over protection necessarily for their neighbors, um, and this this is kind of especially evident with the with the Sicilian mafia from Sicily in, in Italy, and a main part of how they. They came over to the U.S. was as a result of the the Mussolini regime during World War II. He was a, a dictator, as many know, and he pushed these these groups out because they had influence over the people. Um, something which he wanted to have himself. Um, so that that led for member members of the Sicilian mafia to flee to the United States and 
um, become become sort of rivals to the Italian American mafia, even though they were very similar and from the same place in Italy. Because that's something I feel like I realize about organized crime is that it it seems to thrive where there's you know not as much of a strict government. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, if they're able to take control and you know extort businesses or whatever, like you know, if there's not a strong you know uh, response from the government, that's really what allows for the thriving of uh, organized crime. They kind of it seems like they kind of take the place of government in those cities. Um, Especially as we we discuss a little later on with the city of Newport, they the local and, and state government and police forces especially um, were not as present as they should be, especially with the widespread corruption. Um, so after World War II, there was very much a kind of unchallenged growth to the. American mafia groups and crime families. So between the mid-1930s and 60s, federal agencies did not seem very concerned about the growth um, of organized crime. And this connects to our previous topic because America was so concerned with stopping communism that internal affairs were often left by the wayside, um, especially with the, the many wars that we had in that period of time, like the end of World War II, cold, the Cold War that um, resulted from the, the satellite states of um, the USSR after World War II and Germany, um, communism kind of filled the spot that Germany left um, after they were defeated. Yeah, because this is one of the things that I found in my research is that um, some of the gangsters that were arrested during the time period were actually victims of the MKUltra project because um, prisons were another big um, place where a lot of these experiments took place. And so Mm -hmm. some of the gangsters that were in prison were subjected to drugs and shock therapy and and whatnot um, to try and, you know, gain control over them. Mm -hmm. They were very, um, especially after they've been arrested, Criminals and other other people like that were kind of very susceptible and easy to experiment on um, because of the fact that it was kind of viewed as retribution for their acts that um, which is what landed them in, in prison. Mm-hmm. Um, another important event that could be tied to mafia and crime families were was the the JFK assassination in the 1960s talk about conspiracy theories that's uh-huh. got like <laughs> yeah this is very very conspiracy um, but also with with Lee Harvey Oswald and some of the the information behind that you can easily see how how the JFK assassination is riddled with conspiracy theories um, but the logic behind this this view of the JFK assassination is that John F. Kennedy's brother, Robert Kennedy, was the attorney general um, of the, the Kennedy administration. 
and he became very dead set on taking down crime rings in America, uh, like the the Italian American mafia and the the Sicilian mafia. Um, and some believe that JFK's assassination was a mafia hit to retaliate retaliate against Robert and potentially discourage any future investigation and prosecution of Italian crime families. Uh, I mean, not to go too far off topic, but he was also assassinated. Um, yes. He, he was killed. I, I'm sure it didn't have anything to do with organized crime. I think it was more about um, uh, Israeli-Palestinian relationship. But... Um, yeah, it's just an interesting point that he, both him and his brother were assassinated. Mm-hmm. And going back to the, the labor unions that um, were sometimes riddled in organized crime, um, kind of the, like John Gotti, I think he was a, a uh, labor union executive. Uh, there's been some more that have kind of been investigated for these crimes uh, in, the, in the late 1900s. Um, so this unrestricted crime that we've talked about before um, was vastly reduced by the institution of the RICO Acts. Um, and this stands for racketeering, racketeer-influenced and corruption and corrupt organizations. So prosecutors in, um, in the U.S. government used these acts to charge crime families easier. Uh, which was unlike Al Capone's prosecution, where could easily these acts kind of formed from Al Capone's prosecution, which was really a mess. Um, so, is this kind of connected to the idea that um, you know uh, crime lords would kind of keep their hands clean of whatever they'd say? You know, you need to go do something, and then mm-hmm. if it happens, you know, it happens, but. Uh, then that made it really hard to prosecute them because obviously they knew that they were the ones who were in charge and were doing things, but they weren't explicitly out there, you know, killing mm-hmm. people or you know, running drugs or alcohol mm-hmm. during prohibition or whatnot. Were you are you um, familiar with Al Capone's prosecution and how much of a mess that was? Well, I know that he was not caught on anything to do with actual crime. It was Precise. tax evasion, wasn't it? Precisely. That, yeah. It wasn't crime that got him. It was tax evasion in the end. Mm-hmm. And um, so these acts made it easier for them to prosecute people like Al Capone because um, they didn't have to prove that he murdered somebody, but instead that he told somebody to murder another person with, uh, with mob hits and stuff like that. So a local connection to this history is the Newport Mafia, and an important distinction that the Newport Mafia has from maybe some of the other crime families that we've talked about before was that they were actually Newport was actually under control of the Cleveland Syndicate, which was a not an Italian crime family, but instead a, a Jewish, um, it was a group of, of four Jewish men. Their names were Mo, Mo Dalitz, Morris Kleinman, Louis Rothkoff, and Sam Tucker. 
That's really interesting. I didn't. I guess I'd never really thought. I mean, I feel like the the one you hear about all the time is the mafia, and you think Italian, and then of course that, there are other organized crime like the yakuza from Japan and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But I feel like the Italians are definitely the ones you hear about the most. I don't really think I ever would have thought about Jewish mm-hmm. uh, Jewish organized crime. I was surprised when I when I read that as well. So most the in Newport, the they made most of their money off of three main sources. What well, I guess kind of four: bootlegging, gambling, prostitution, and um, protection as well. That was a, a main source of their revenue. So with bootlegging, following the the Volstead Act and the which is also known as the the Prohibition Act, um, bootleggers were looking for a small town away from the prying eyes of federal authorities and Newport which was at the time a a semi-industrial city across from a big city in Cincinnati um, it was seen as a very ideal location for these groups so with gambling many Vegas casinos can be traced back to Newport gambling institutions before they were driven out by Robert F. Kennedy or Robert Kennedy and Governor Combs at the time, I believe that was his name. So, with prostitution, a main source, I mean, uh, grouping was around Monmouth Street. Uh, it was a very popular location for houses of ill repute, especially since many of the working class men that would make the trip daily over to Cincinnati, they would take this route to and from work. And there were two, two distinctions of houses of prostitution. They had day houses for tourists visiting during the day and night houses for the working class men getting off work. A very popular house in Newport uh, was called Vivian Schultz's House of Prostitution. This was located next to today's Newport on the Levee. Um, and I know from growing up here, I would have never thought that that Newport was such a haven of yes, of haven crime. of crime. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Is I, just, I, I knew that because I feel like I've I've heard about you know Newport's kind of seedy history before, but and, and I mean having been down you know on Monmouth Street, it's not something you would ever think today. I mean there are you know some of those uh, like gangsters and, and and places like that that I guess kind of hint towards the history. But if you went down there, you'd never think of that today. Yeah, there's like a Kroger right next to Monmouth Street and a drawer. But obviously, the levee's been really developed now versus yes. what it used to be. Yes, especially with with these companies moving in and and re re doing most of the the architecture there. So going back to the the Jewish crime syndicate and the Cleveland Four. Through, through many assassinations of, of rivals and other acquisitions, the group took control over many of the, the businesses um, around Northern Kentucky. And one of the most notable two places that they took, that they took control over was a, a horse racing track near where Coney Island is and a dog racing track in Florence, Kentucky. Uh, which was converted to a horse racing track and later renamed Turfway Park. 
um, which a lot of people around here know about. Mm-hmm. One of the, the most important acts that kind of led to the Newport Mafia um, heading west towards Vegas is George Ratterman and the Committee of 500. This was the Committee of 500 was a group of concerned citizens that did not want the the mafia to control their lives much longer. And the George Ratterman was a football player, a Catholic football player that went to Notre Dame and lived around the city of Cincinnati. And he was looked up to and was kind of the spokesperson of the Committee of 500. So the the Cleveland Four had an elaborate framing scheme to debase the opposition of the mafia, which was the the Committee of 500, and they targeted George Raderman as as a, a influential person to target and debase. Uh, the opposition's arguments. So on May 9, 1961, three Newport detectives arrested George Ratterman in the Glen Hotel um, for prostitution charges. He was not, he was under the influence of drugs, obviously, when they came in. And he was, he didn't have any clothes on and he was in the presence of one of the prostitutes, which assuming the the, Matic, the Mafia's connections was somebody who worked for the Mafia. And the case quickly fell apart when a doctor testified that George had been drugged. Uh, this gave U.S. Attorney General Robert Kennedy and Governor Combs of Kentucky uh, a big reason to push organized crime out of Newport and uh, especially the corruption that had happened, uh, which was kind of the basis for the Committee of 500 with the Whitesburg corruption. Mm-hmm. Um, and a very notable event in, New, event in Newport history was the Beverly Hills Supper Club fire. I don't know if you've heard of the... I haven't, no. You haven't? No. So this is a... There was a fire at the Beverly Hills Supper Club, which is right down the road from NKU, uh, near the near the the 471 interchange. So on May 28, 1977, the the Beverly Hills Supper Club mysteriously caught on fire. Um, and arson and mafia retaliation is one of the one of the suspected cases. The building was vastly overcrowded due, a, due to a popular concert and investigations blamed the faulty fire control systems and confusing architecture, as well as faulty wiring for the, the cause of the fire. And one, one interesting fact as we begin to, to wind down our podcast was that Mario Puzo, who wrote The Godfather, mm-hmm. uh, the, the popular mafia movie, uh, which was based on a book, sourced some material from Newport history. It's really interesting. Mm-hmm. And in Godfather 2, he actually, Newport was actually mentioned by name in the movie. So that's very cool as a, as a Northern Kentucky resident. Mm-hmm. So... 
some of the modern day impact of this and organized organized crime in general um, is the continuation of of gang wars in some some big cities across the U.S. Um, and drug smuggling can be looked at as kind of the new form of of bootlegging, as it is illegal and um, highly profitable. This uh, and this has kind of led to the growth of, of street drugs and laced product, where um, drug dealers can kind of get their get their customers to kind of get hooked on their their supply. Yeah, a lot of the same drugs that were used in the MK Ultra project. Precisely. You know, things that we don't, you know, a lot of the effects that we understand about them now is that's exactly where it came from was with was in MK Ultra. Mm-hmm.